0: The government is perfectly willing to send doctors to prison. The AMA is a perfect example. That's a setup for disaster. We really are the general contractors of medicine. The federal government does not believe they should be paying for services which they've already paid for. Sounds like a scam. It is a scam. That's actually known as fraud
1: i got these cases down cold. I can spout these cases just
0: like you, Greg. If anything goes wrong, I just tell them my name is Rick Bucato. You're getting stupider
2: by the day. Okay. Well, they get steamed. They get really steamed and they take it personally.
1: Risk Management Monthly, April 2008. We're being recorded live here in Key
0: West, Florida. Sitting across the table from me is Dr. Greg Henry. Hello, Rick. It's amazing. Last month, we were in Kauai, Hawaii. Now we're in Key West. Are we ever going home Somebody again? has to do
1: this. Somebody know, has to do Do it. you think this is work. fun? Do you think this is easy? No, no. But Mel is not here. Mel is back in Los Angeles doing He's his thing. putting shrimp on the barbie, I think. He's doing something like yeah. that, yeah. So we have, instead of Mel, somebody who everybody in emergency medicine absolutely knows. Who could that possibly be? That would be Dr. Jim Roberts. Oh,
0: we're not worthy. We're just yes, not, we are worthy.
1: not worthy. Jimbo, thanks very much for showing up and helping us out here. It's my for the, pleasure. Those of you who don't know this, you've been living under a rock if you don't know Jim Roberts, because everybody in the world gets emergency medicine news, which is the slipping cot. Some people would call it a throwaway, Jim, but not that we would do that. But Jim is the head of the editorial board there and has been writing a column in that paper. How long, Jim?
2: About 25 years.
1: Get out of here. Yeah, it's yeah. a monthly column, too. That's a lot of print. That's a lot of ink. 25 years Jim has been writing this, and he is highly regarded because it's very pithy, to the point, tells people how to do things
0: on a wide spectrum of things, as you can imagine, for 25 years. Haven't you run out of topics yet? And he's an also an author of a fabulous book that has taught us how to do procedures in emergency medicine. Robertson Hedges, Clinical Procedures in Emergency Medicine is the book for
1: our procedures. It's the Bible. It's about four inches thick. Jim redoes it every four years. And one of the things we're going to do today is to ask Jim regarding his points of view on a number of procedures and how we can get into trouble and not get into trouble performing those procedures in emergency medicine. Jim is also professor of emergency medicine at Drexel University College of Medicine. He's chairman of Mercy Catholic Medical Center in Philadelphia, where we are both from. And I guess that's probably enough, Jim.
2: Sounds like, in fact, you are not worthy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jim, do you remember I met Lydia, your wife, when she was a high school
2: student? Chestnut Hill College?
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we've known each other for a long time. As a matter of fact, we watch our kids grow up as I watch Greg's kids grow up. Um in Kauai with us not too long ago jim's son matt was there joining us and so we have been together for many 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 years we've watched our kids grow up we watch them get married hopefully we won't watch them get divorced as we
0: take this trip down memory lane <laughs> as we why age we, gracefully <laughs> yes why don't we get into some real topics today rick what's the, on the agenda
1: well on the agenda i told you last month that we would focus on residents in the emergency department and i'm trying to find the letter here who wrote that who asked about that that wasn't harvey castor he wants to talk about nps and pas and we'll do that well let
0: me just make a few comments while you're looking for that letter and people always i I just want to acknowledge this
1: person's name this is dave goff of Lancaster, pennsylvania that's dave this is your topic buddy
0: okay let's do it for Dave
1: now at my little community hospital 24,000 visits we did have family practice residents for two years but not emergency medicine residents and frankly we didn't have a many a lot of issues probably because we didn't know what the heck we were doing but you guys have a lot of experience particularly Jim with having residents rotate through their department now we did write a couple of things down that was of particular interest regarding this topic so here you go tell us about the legal standing of residents
0: Everybody asks me, Greg, how do you handle residents? And my answer is with a whip and a gun and a chair. The bottom line is there is no resident who has a provider number. They are not allowed. What do you mean provider number? Well, they don't have a federal provider number which allows you to bill for the services. Bill Medicare. Bill Medicare. And everything has to do with the billing. Medicare doesn't really care what the residents do. What they care is what's billed and what they receive billing for. And they want to make sure that if they are getting Part B billings, which is the physician part of Medicare, that that service has been provided by the licensed physician who is associated with that number. That means a resident can assist you, can participate. But in the final analysis... You are responsible. The resident has no standing by himself legally. They are always functioning under someone else's license. Even though
1: this resident is licensed to practice medicine in the state in which you are practicing, and they could go out and start a family practice office, but as a trainee, they are under a unique perspective here
0: well they're under a unique perspective because the money to pay those trainees although they are technically an a direct agent of the hospital they get a salary from the hospital the hospital turns around passes that entire salary that that resident receives plus their benefit package plus indirects plus direct teaching costs right to the federal government, and the hospital is paid. Sounds like a scam. It is a scam, and it's they're based boat, on a boatload of money. Boatload of money. <laughs> boatload of money. And the federal government, with some degree of reasonableness here, does not believe they should be paying for services which they've already paid for. So if you're having the resident do work and you're not supervising that work, don't send them a bill because that's going to be a
2: major issue. Residents also are not members of the credentialed medical staff. They don't get staff privileges, so they're not like the ER docs. They could be if they weren't working as a resident, though.
0: Let me tell you a
1: case that... Well, that's strange, because you've seen these places where the resident moonlights down
0: in the emergency department. In the old days, they would have residents, the surgical residents, moonlighting in the emergency department. Totally different question. And at that moment in time, they are not functioning As the direct agent and servant of the hospital, they are almost always in those situations working for the group that's down in the department, and their salary and their
2: income for that do not come from the federal government. And their malpractice is not covered by the hospital of which they're a house staff. It's paid specifically by the group that they're working for.
0: Absolutely. Let me give you a case just to ponder. Two plastic surgeons are dividing up their practice. As they're dividing up the practice, their accountant notices that there are bills sent from the same day, the same time at two different hospitals by one of the docs. The explanation was he was sewing up a patient at one hospital. The resident in plastic surgery was doing the face of a child at another hospital, which he never saw. Now you have a bill having been sent to the federal government on a case the plastic surgeon never saw, and he went ahead and signed the slip with his billing number on
2: it. That's actually known as fraud. Yes,
0: exactly. That's the term, fraud. And Is that also called abuse? Well, whatever else they want to add to this. Fraud and abuse? Just understand it's called stupidity this. also. Yes. The government is perfectly willing to send doctors to prison. And a prison is not a good thing. they have a, a special thing. prison for doctors? They do not, unfortunately. So this going to prison is not a good thing. And believe me, they view that as arbitrary and capricious use of the billing code and direct fraud. And he went to prison on that basis. Is that where Martha Stewart went, the doctor's prison? I, th- <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't think either of them was that lucky. Right? Well, it's the same way with the radiologist. I think that the government's willing to pay the radiologist the next day for reading the X-ray. Even though he was not there for the care of the patient, if the ER doctor wanted to send a bill for the X-ray, they could, and they get paid. They just wouldn't pay two people. They just look the other way on that, and most hospitals and ERs look the other way and allow the radiologist to make the money on their work.
0: I think that the days of that are coming rapidly to a close. Things are changing around the world. We can have a film read any hour of the day and night. Doesn't matter what time of the day it is. Film should be read when the patient needs it. And this whole concept of, well, we can't read all the films in the non-daylight hours. My retort to that is that it's always daylight somewhere in the world. And there's always somebody in Australia or India who's willing to read that film. Although there's always
1: a twist. One of the twists in regarding the, that teleradiology business is credentialing of those doctors who are in Bangladesh and in the Philippines and in Australia and those kinds of things.
0: I understand that there are going to be some credentialing issues, but understand this for years, for 50 years in this country, the pathology departments have sent their difficult slides to the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology in Bethesda to get opinions. Those pathologists didn't have privileges back at that hospital, but they're world authorities in certain areas. And, you know, nobody complained about that. The reason they're complaining now is the payment question. Funny, when there's no money involved, all of a sudden the ethics become a lot more dicey.
1: Your point is certainly compelling when you bring it up, because everybody knows about the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology.
2: Well, our radiologists overread every x-ray that Nighthawk reads. They do their own dictation, and they bill for it.
1: So there's... Two bills, or is one of them a...
2: The hospital pays Nighthawk a set fee. Oh, I got you. And then our radiologist, the official interpretation is our radiologist, and we get the call, you know that x-ray that Nighthawk read as being normal? Well, there is something here, and then we're responsible for it.
0: This is a very good topic to be talking about this along with the trainees because in a lot of places, it was the first and second year residents in radiology who were reading those films at night, and if you think they didn't have reading mistakes... You should see the stuff that came back to us the next day. I'd rather have a board-certified neuroradiologist, which Nighthawks can get in Australia reading my CT of the head, than a first- or second-year resident in radiology at some
1: university. Not that we want to go there particularly, but that does bring up the issue of, well, who the heck's supervising the radiology residents? And what level of supervision is there if the radiologist is at home and the resident is reading the films? Well, and-
0: let me tell you, the problem with that is that what is now set up is that they have a perfect right to call in their staff if they need to, or even the way that it is technically, they can send it to their home and they can look at the film. Now that we've digitalized everything, the man on call doesn't have to come to the emergency department. He could actually look at the film at home. But the subtle message sent to the radiology resident is, if you need me to read the film, you're no kind of man. All of a sudden, you don't have the guts and the courage to call it like it is. What that means is, save my sleep. Don't bother me. I'll look at the film in the morning. You know, there's nothing as useless as a film read in the morning that says, I think that's a C3, C4 subluxation. That's exactly what I want to see the next morning.
1: Gotcha. All right, let's get specifically into some of these resident issues One of the things that came up was off-service residents coming down to the emergency department. You've got the surgery resident coming in to rule out appendicitis case or something to that effect. Tell us about some of these issues regarding supervision of
0: these residents when they come down to your department. Well, let me give you a case for the two of you to reflect upon. An emergency physician, 15 years experience, very good, very talented, walks in the room of a 68-year-old man who's complaining of lower abdominal pain new and onset, quite severe, puts his hand on the belly and says, you know, I think there's a pulsatile something, gets an immediate Doppler at the bedside, reads an eight centimeter aneurysm, goes out, calls down the senior resident in surgery. So he passes that case on, sees the resident come down, assumes that they've taken over the case, and he's in an emergency department, which is smoking that night, lots of things, The senior resident looks at the guy, takes the history that he's been having diarrhea for two days, so he signs him out as a stable aneurysm with gastroenteritis. Now, whenever you're tempted to write gastroenteritis, just understand that phrase is on the bottom of more cases of emergency medicine malpractice than any other. So he sends the guy home. The emergency doc goes by the room, sees the guy is gone. What does he assume? That he's gone upstairs to the surgical floor. Well, before the end of his shift, the emergency doc gets to see the guy again because they bring him back in cardiac arrest, having blown out his aneurysm. Now the lawsuit comes. The first name on that lawsuit is the emergency docs. Knew or should have known, did not follow up, did not know that the patient had been discharged by the resident, even though that resident had spoken to his attending. The emergency doc is still in the soup. Well, it makes an ER doc like a dope that he doesn't know what's going on in his own department, too. You see, that's the problem. And all three of us have been there. When the place is turning to crap and you think you've properly turned this over, and by the way, this isn't the intern. This is a guy who's a fifth-year resident in general surgery who's going to be out there doing these cases in six months. You'd assume he'd know what to do in this case. And you know what? It didn't turn out that way. Nasty. nasty.
2: One, one, one way it could help that is make sure the ER doc always discharges everyone. Don't let the nurse discharge them, and clearly don't let the house staff discharge anybody. You've made the right
0: point, and that is when they come down to play with the patients, I'm happy to have them examine, I'm happy to have them do whatever they'd like, but what they have to do, if all of you agree, no problem. If you think that patient needs to come in and they'd like to send them home, I'm sorry. You have to pull rank at that moment is well, isn't the it, attending
1: isn 't it really kind of like a consult you 're asking them their opinion kind of thing, but it 's still your patient it 's still your responsibility that person hasn 't been admitted that person hasn 't been turned over to the care of another faculty member of the hospital or member of the medical staff so you 're just asking their opinion, and many times they are so junior that your opinion it's just a technicality. You have to call them to get the wheels turning, to get the surgery. It's not department. a matter
0: of just being junior. Let's say you've just completed your residency in emergency medicine of three years. This is a seventh-year resident in plastic surgery. He may actually have had more training than you have. It's a procedural question. You are, at that moment in time, the attending. It's your responsibility. You have an obligation of the patient to protect the patient. The resident always has another set of agendas that you don't know about. His one role is not necessarily care of the patient at that moment. And I think sometimes you have to assert it. And the only way you assert it intelligently is to call that resident's attending and say this needs to be an attending-to-attending discussion.
1: When there's a disagreement. When there's a disagreement.
0: You have to do it that way. Now, I get along with the resident's fine and pretty much... We cajole and we kind of slide and smooze a solution for almost everything. The bottom line, though, is if you cannot come to some understanding,
2: then you have to talk to the other attending. We sort of saw that with medicine. It used to be that you'd call the family doc and say, this fellow's here with some chest pain, sounds kind of serious to me. You give him the answer. And they would say, well, he's okay, I know the guy, he's a complainer, or, you know, he doesn't have heart disease, send him home. Well, we don't have that much anymore. We've sort of fixed it with medicine. That patient is admitted to the hospital, or the attending comes and sees the patient himself, at which time, I always write, care of this patient turned over to such and such a doctor, And therefore, I'm out of the case. Now, I think that helps me, but I'm not 100% sure. It's not perfect,
0: but it certainly does lay the groundwork. What I've learned over the years in all of these cases is it's not just one thing. It's the wall you build and a series of actions that you've taken. And clearly, the more people you've spoken to and the way you've kind of built the safety net for the patient is the way to go. What the residents can't do is take it as an affront to them. Well, they get steamed. They get really steamed and they take it personally. Yeah. And what they need to do is, first day of residency, they need to have a session with us and talk about what the legal relationship of parties really are. Because you know what? When something goes bad, then all of a sudden we should have done the explaining. We should have done this. We should have done that. You know what? That's the way the world is. And until the government would like to change that, were responsible for that care. It goes much deeper than that. There's a current case that's just been decided, Thomas V. Van Toynen, which is a Michigan appeals court case, where the attending came in, and that night, one of his 84-year-old patients, who is on Coumadin, is admitted with an INR of 29. It was unbelievable. The resident had written an order for Leviquin which, as you know, can occasionally lengthen the time of the action of your Coumadin. They worked on reversing this. The patient had bleeding signs. By the way, by the time they actually got fresh frozen plasma and vitamin K and all these other things involved, the patient died, which happens. Now the question is, is this attending responsible for the resident that night who wrote the order for Leviquin? The answer, initially, there was a dismissal at the trial court level saying, well, she'd probably died anyway. And you know what? He's really not in charge. Both those issues were overturned by the Michigan Court of Appeals. Now there's going to be a trial on this case. And they said, you know what? That's your resident. You're responsible for what he wrote that night. Eat it and like it.
2: Surgical residents, ENT, subspecialty, seem to have gotten out of the habit of rotating their residents to the ER. We get medicine and family practice. One of the best ways to get a good relationship with them is to have them as interns, and they put themselves in your shoes for a while. Also with caution, don't let the resident call his attending back and say, the ER guy is giving me trouble. You speak with him personally attending to attending. You're not fighting with the house staff. If you want to do any fighting, you fight it on an equal level with an attending to attending. And they usually believe you, particularly if they know you. Yeah, the other thing
0: is, you can always use this and say, you know, your resident and I don't see the world the same way. Maybe you need to come in, officially sign me off of this case, take it over,
2: to which the answer always is, ah, oh, admit him anyway. Exactly
0: right. Whenever push comes to
2: shove, they say, you know what, just blow him in. We'll work at it in the morning. And that's the one you go and see the next day in the hospital. Right. And when you see him in the cafeteria, you say, yeah, I heard that guy went to the operating room for his appendicitis that your resident wanted to send home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Don't let him get away with it.
0: We used to have tremendous problem with some of the internists, a kid who had, a month before had been the intern in internal medicine. Now he's the CCU resident. So they'd come down with chest pain and they'd say, well, in my opinion, I don't think this is cardiac. In my opinion, some snot nosed kid who 13 months ago hadn't even been out of medical school has probably seen a 20th or a 30th or the 40th of the chest pains that you have is now telling you that it's not cardiac. You know what? That ain't going anyplace.
1: Well, if Mel were here, Mel would be the summarizer. He's our great summarizer. He said, well, let me get this straight then. This has to be maintained at a faculty or attending level, and one of Jim's keys here is do not let that resident talk to his faculty and say, well, here's what the faculty guy said, because you have no idea it's garbage in, garbage out, because he's giving them the same bad information that is allowing him to make this error in judgment. And if they get annoyed, it's kind of infuriating, actually, that a surgical resident would have the balls to kind of get annoyed at an attending in the emergency room. It doesn't say much of what they think of the ER attendings.
0: Well, things are better now than they used to be. I watched the era when we were building a profession in emergency medicine. And it's certainly much better now than it was 20 or 30 years ago because they do. Some of them do still rotate through us and we've lost pigmentation in our hair. We're now gray hairs. We're older. We've been around forever. We really can help them out. In fact, there is an extension of a legal theory which is used all the time now. You and I are considered to be agents of the hospital. We're called ostensible or apparent agents because the patient views us as a part of the hospital system. Although if you read your
1: contract, the
0: contract says you are
1: not an agent of the hospital kind of thing. You just appear to be an agent by the fact that you're the doctor in the emergency
0: department. Agency is not established for purposes of the business aspects of the contract. But most state laws have said by virtue of the fact that they cannot separate you out right. or part of it. Well, that's been extended to the residents, which basically say someone in the hospital. By the way, the case on this, which is landmark, is something called Grew versus Mount Clemens General Hospital, Michigan Supreme Court, 1974, which had to do with who's responsible for whom in the hospital. But the patients view the residents as agents of you as well. Although they're employees of the hospital, you will say to the patient, my assistant or Dr. So-and-so who works with me, yada, yada, they view the house staff as being your agents. And so they will carry that over, and it's been carried over. There's several cases on this which are landmark, something called Lansbury versus Van Buren in Ohio. There are several of these
2: cases which basically say the patient views the resident as your agent. Well, it doesn't take rocket science to figure out that Walmart's responsible when the produce guy leaves water near the lettuce stand and somebody slips on it. It's Walmart's problem. It's not the produce guy's problem. Right. Same way with the resident. Exactly right. And even though they sue the resident, the resident named
0: peers, it is your malpractice insurance and the hospital's malpractice insurance that are going to clean this mess up was that like Marcus versus
1: Queensbury? You remember that case Marcus versus <laughs> <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I got these cases down cold. I can spout these cases just like you, Greg. Oh, that's very good. <laughs> I like that. Now listen, so we got the issue here regarding supervision. I think we beat that into the ground. Anything we need to say about off-site residents coming down and doing procedures in the emergency department?
2: Any words of wisdom there? Well, I think what you're talking about is the surgical resident coming to put a Quinton catheter in somebody's neck or orthopedic surgeon resident coming down to reduce a fracture or dislocation. And their attending is not with them. Right. First of all, the attending used to be able to and used to, but they can no longer bill for that procedure. So they're really giving it away. You could be responsible for that procedure, supervise their resident. You'd be nuts to do that for a something like a fracture or a complicated dislocation that you can't handle, but then you are responsible for that. So my advice would be that let the attending orthopedic surgeon who's at home take the heat and be responsible for what his resident does and you stay out of it. For those procedures, let them write their notes and they should say discuss with their attending and you not be the supervisor nor the biller for those complicated procedures. But I feel perfectly comfortable in supervising them doing a
0: collies or something like that. And if I'm there and I do the supervision... I am going to bill for it. In fact, many years ago, when this whole thing broke in 1996, when we got into real rules of governing house staff, I was at the meeting in Washington where all the presidents of the various societies were asking questions. And everybody sends to that meeting, by the way, who you'd expect. Pediatrics sends a guy with a big bow tie, and psychiatry's got some guy smearing feces. And I mean, everybody sends what you'd think they'd send. The broken down jock was, of course, from ortho. And I saw him stick up his hand and say, you mean to tell me when my resident goes down there and sets a fracture, I can't charge for it. And the guy looked right at him and said, no. So I'm sitting there for emergency medicine. I said, excuse me, I'm from emergency medicine. If we supervise it, can we charge for it? He says, are you there for the procedure? I said, yeah. He says, sure, go ahead. That one interchange changed how we actually relate to some of these people. If you're there, you take the responsibility, you sign the chart, you bill for it. Any issues
1: regarding documentation, focusing on the emergency physician doing documentation refers to the behavior of the off-service resident. You want to put down that Dr. So-and-so of the surgery service came down and saw the patient or anything in particular that you would have uh,
0: thoughts about?
2: Make sure they write a note. A lot of times they try to cut corners and they'll just say, okay, I just went ahead and did it. And I said, did you write a procedure note on that? Make sure they do that.
0: One thing I like to
2: have is... If the patient screams, take a look in the curtain.
0: Right, right. I like to have a note that says at 1248, so-and-so here from surgery looking at the patient. I want to put a time down. I want to be able to reconstruct at some point in time, this is when the patient came in, this is when we called them, this is when they came down, this is when they responded. Because believe me, two years from now or three years from now when there's a lawsuit going on, you're not going to remember that kind of detail. And I want to know what that interaction was. But the key is they don't get to discharge from the department without checking out with us.
1: You know, that brings up another point. Sometimes you see women who are pregnant who were in a minor car accident or something like that or had some kind of UTI or something. And it's become the standard if they're beyond 20 weeks to send them down to OB for a little checkup. And I have seen in the past, but not recently, where people would be sent home from OB. The people in OB would call the OBGYN doctor and said, well, there's nothing going on in the uterus. We don't see any kind of early signs of labor. And she's okay by our standing. And that they would send them home from OB. And that is, in my view, absolutely the wrong thing to do. I think they need to come back to the emergency department where they are reassessed by the emergency physician. Signed out with the proper aftercare instructions and follow up instructions, which we know how to do well, and they don't know a thing about that on an OB. And I think that we often don't understand that we're just asking for a tiny little test to be done, a test to ascertain what's going on in that uterus and in that child. And once that test is over, we want them to come back just like we would have
0: an ultrasound done outside of the department by somebody else. Yeah, the question's individualized because if you're asking for a single test or a single check, that's one thing. Frequently from trauma, we'll call OBGEN and say, look, keep them for four hours, six hours, and put them on the tape. But when they come back, they need to come back. Well, unless one of the OBGYN people sees them and takes care of that issue. But all he's doing is saying, okay, the uterus is okay. But she was there
1: for this other reason. She was vomiting. She had a urinary tract infection. She was in a car accident. Does she have any other injuries? Right. They're not competent to do those kinds of things. They're just checking on this life support
0: system for a pregnant
1: uterus. Right. They're looking <laughs>
2: at the life support system. You're exactly right. We do that all the time for red eyes. We send them to the ophthalmology clinic during the day. Same thing. Thing with OB. I think you're better off if you treat that as a discharge from the emergency department. Well, if, if
1: going it, to open the eye clinic is a different thing. They're going to see some specialists there who take care of the case. You're just kind of passing them off.
2: What if the blood pressure is 200 over 110 because they have acute angle closure glaucoma? You don't want the ophthalmologist to blow that off. He probably wouldn't even look at it. So I treat it personally as a discharge to OB for monitoring, and I don't let them go up there unless I'm pretty much... Happy with my evaluation.
1: They're going to come back to your department before they leave? No. What you said then is just exactly the opposite of what I've said, and I think the difference may be the nuances of there's nothing else going on with this person. As far as I'm concerned, they can go home if their uterus is okay. That's a different story. I'm suggesting that in the more complex cases, this woman has to have a prescription written for some antibiotic for this UTI or whatever it is kind of thing then that's still your responsibility.
2: Well, that's the whole communication issue. You need to communicate that, that you're not finished with them, that you're sending them up there for an evaluation, but you want them back. There you go. That's usually not clearly delineated in your conversation, which it should be.
0: By the way, many years ago, we had a 32, 33-week pregnant woman who was involved in an auto accident. As part of her evaluation, we found that she had a tib-fib fracture. And so the orthopedic resident came down, and he's putting on a splint, on this fracture, the emergency docs are off doing other things at that moment. Now, she's complaining to the OB resident of some cramping pains in her abdomen. And he's saying, well, kind of hold on for a minute. We're getting this. I want the my, OB uh, resident? The ortho resident. Probably <laughs> said that foot fractures often give you abdominal cramps. Right, right, right. <laughs> often give you abdominal cramps. And he said, we see that, is what he said. That's yes, normal. Yeah, <laughs> that's normal. And so by the time he's done putting the splint on and hasn't told anybody She's having cramps about every five minutes. And now by the time we get her upstairs to OB, now she delivers a dead kid. And it was about 45, maybe 50 minutes of her pain following this auto accident. And the problem is when you're in a specialty, you forget about the bigger picture. We really are the general contractors of medicine. They come down to do something incredibly specific and all the other stuff, they don't think about it.
1: Okay, now we're getting back to the case of the ER resident. The ER resident, I think we've got the off-service guys, they're all taken care of. I guess a lot of the similar issues apply. Who's in charge? Part A and Part B, again, of Medicare. Part A is the hospital part. Part B is the billing for the physician. Correct. Now, one of the issues regarding this is documentation. These residents in the emergency department are generally supervised by an emergency department attending. That attending has two options as far as I can see regarding documentation. They can either see the patient with the resident or they can see the patient without the resident and independently evaluate. But that physician and resident have to be in tune with regards to the plan of care of that patient based on their assessments independently or jointly. That the plan of care is now agreed upon. We're going to do this, that, and the other thing. So either one of those has to happen, but it has to be documented if you want to get paid by Medicare, that you either saw the patient independently Or you saw the patient with the resident.
0: The smartest thing to do, and I'm interested to see what Jim does about this, but i like to see a note in both your note and the resident's note. The resident's note should say, patient seen along with Dr. Henry, the following plan established, this is what we did. By the way, I think the standard in the country is that the residents start a lot of these cases, unless they're critical, they start the workup, then they take you in as they get data to see the case. You go in with the resident, you review the examination, you kind of look at what they found to be positive or negative, and then you get to interject any special examination things you'd like to show the residents at that moment in time. And then you finally come together for synthesis and put together a product. And then it should say where you sign. This patient personally attended by me. I examined them. I know them. The smart attendings, and now I carry in my coat a package of my cards. I actually give people my card so they ever know, is this the guy who saw you? Yeah there's the guy. You'd be amazed at the number of people who actually keep those cards. But you put the wrong phone number on there. Well, of course. If anything goes wrong, yeah. I just tell them my name is Rick Bucata. Right? You know,
1: this is not related to our topic at hand, but I do the same thing. We had cards printed by the hospital. has a hospital name. There's this ostensible agency kind of thing because it says the name of our hospital and all the logo and all that other stuff. And it says medical director, emergency department. And our and the other doctors had cards given to them too. The other doctors really didn't want to use those cards. They found that I loved using those cards. When when you hand those people your business card it's like you're treating them like a respected person i'm going to give you my business card of the ip yes exactly plus i say my name is dr bucata well who the heck knows what that means try to spell that go ahead the <laughs> fact of the matter is, is they can see it that you have taken your time to introduce yourself more than properly and i think it's a great great way to make it clear who you are and that you're regarding the patient with a certain level of respect in terms of giving them that business card. Now, I must acknowledge we have 50% or more of our patients are Asian. In Japan, you bow and hand the card with two fingers, et etc. Et but a lot of cultures, I think, value that disproportionately over what we do in this the, country.
0: I think when you're dealing with the residents who are assigned to us, not the off-service residents, whether they're family practice or whether there are actual emergency medicine residents and where I am right now we occasionally have family practice residents you don't have the respect problem because they're working with you and really you get along pretty well with them the biggest error that i see in ever that is when you haven't gone back in when you assume that a resident knows certain things at their level which they do not know we assume well they can do a history and physical You know what? That's a big assumption. And a lot of times I want to go back in and take a little history myself because I can't tell you the number of times I've walked in and you and I have developed over 30 some years a way of asking questions that get at the point that we want to answer. And you need to do it. You absolutely need to but do historical
2: it. historical alternans. You get the exact different story. <laughs> <that the patient laughs> I've gave. not heard
0: that term before.
1: Yes. The
2: resident looks at you like, he didn't tell me that he just had a coronary cath. <laughs> that's know? right. And, you know, exactly. boy, did you ask him? Well, no, I didn't ever ask him. <laughs> that's right. But I agree with you about giving your name. to the, That's filet mignon to Presgaini. Patients love that. I give them the number. Steve. So if you have a problem, call me. I give them the ER number. You know, I may not be there, but I say one of my partners will be here. Plus, it's great follow-up for you. You've got an interesting case. You want to know what turned out there. Give me a call. Tell me how you're doing the next day because you know whether well, maybe it's PID, maybe it's something it's else. It's such a
1: little thing, but it's so simple, but it is disproportionately regarded positively by oh, the patients. Oh, is, it
2: is amazing. So there's amazing
1: your, PR. It's this easy to do doctors really consider
0: doing it. By the way, the real issue right now in emergency medicine and dealing with residents is how much supervision and what kind of supervision they need at various stages of the practice. First years, obviously, need a lot of hand-holding. What do they need at the second year? What do they need at the third year? What do they need from you as far as procedures go? Because now if we move into a procedural question, I think that, again, They may be very bright, they may be very good, but the expectation on the part of third-party payers is, if you're going to charge for a procedure, whether they're first years or third years, you're there for the critical decision-making on that procedure.
2: When I was a resident, when I was a senior resident, I could tell cardiac chest pain in about 10 seconds. I'd walk in the room, I'd size up the patient, I'd hear some of the story, and right then and there, I knew it was costochondritis or not. Right. I've been doing this for 35 years. I have the faintest idea what cardiac chest pain is now. You're getting stupider by the I'm day. getting stupider by the day. <laughs> and if
0: you think I'm bad at that, try me on PEs. <laughs> That's
2: right. Well, God sends costochondritis and tension headaches to the office. God sends brain tumors, subarachnoid hemorrhage, and aortic dissections to the ER. He knows yeah. where to send them. So you'll see a disproportionate number of patients with meningitis with a headache or brain tumors the guys in the office say, well, he's always weak and dizzy. Well, he has a stroke when he comes to the ER. But when he goes to your place, he is just weak and dizzy. We,
1: we did an abstract in a database that exactly confirms what... I know that it's fashionable to criticize patients because they love to come to the ER, et cetera. The fact of the matter is, you've got to be out of your mind when you go to that ER. We make you wait forever. We don't give you a gown that covers your tush. You're going to have no privacy. You're going to be out in the hallway. Would people seek this kind of thing out? I think, personally, that when you come to the ER... For the vast majority of cases, you better think twice about shining them on in terms of having a minor problem, because most people who are reasonable, who have jobs, those kinds of things, are not going to the air casually. They're not going to go there for a routine headache. Most people don't go for a routine headache. I would
2: bet most office practice never see a case of pseudotumor in three or four years. Or we subarachnoid see, hemorrhage. We see a half a dozen pseudotumors a year that come in off the street with a headache. Well, it's fair to say that
0: patients are self-selecting. If they don't think they're too bad, they will go to their family doctor or they'll wait. When they think there's a problem, they're going to come in and see us. And I always love it when one of the family practitioners is saying to me, well, in my office, we would do. And I say, you know, in my office, two people arrest a day. I bet they don't in your office. It is not the same patient population. And we shouldn't assume that it is the same patient population. Not only do 10% of ours come by ambulance. But I think families have an innate sense of who's not doing well, and those people are brought to us, because otherwise they would wait and see Dr. Smith.
2: There's divine intervention. Divine intervention. Very good. Thank God for the ER.
0: So we're going down our list of
1: things I wanted to make sure we cover here. What about this issue here of how many procedures does it take to become competent to do something? This came up when they started credentialing doctors to do ultrasounds. You had to do so many kind of thing, And... This may be an issue in the emergency department in terms of when does a doctor become competent. It's certainly more than just a matter of numbers. I do know that residents do kind of track the number of procedures that they do, et cetera, et cetera. And I think there are even some software that does that kind of thing. Jim, you mentioned before, not on the tape but off the tape, about this issue of
2: residents being credential for procedures?
1: Yes, and you also talked about even potentially the idea of residents going after their programs because they're involved in a lawsuit and the resident claims that they were not adequately instructed to do the procedure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, I don't know whether that really happens or not, but at least theoretically it seems that could happen.
2: Well, I think it's still a gray area, and the medicine residents, for example, have to do a half a dozen central lines witnessed by so many people in order to be credentialed to do them on their own, like when they're in the unit, for example.
0: And often they can get both their central lines and their chest tubes done at the very same time, which is useful. Very convenient. Very convenient.
2: Our residents carry a procedures book, and they're supposed to get so many LPs and so many ocular pressures and that sort of thing. It's kind of loose and... We don't pay a whole lot of attention to it, but we just got to think through our medical board now that they want us to fill out a form on every resident five times before they do a central line. And it goes through such things as a timeout, washing your hands, cap and gown and gloves, all those sort of things that are big buzzwords now for hospital infection. And they have to have witnessed four or five of those before they are okay to do them on their own. You still can't bill for them if you're not in there for the main part of the procedure. But at some point, I can see someone saying, how was this resident credentialed in your program to go out into practice? How do you know it's okay for him to put in a central line? You show us the paperwork, show us the trail, show us the documentation. And what I did mention was that I could see a resident, and I sort of think I heard about this case, but this is one of those sort of maybe urban myths, that he was sued for getting an AV fistula trying to put in a central line. And he then went back and sued his program because he said they didn't give him proper enough treatment that this would not have happened, and they couldn't prove that they had credentialed him to graduate him. that they didn't give him proper teaching. They let him graduate without being properly trained in that procedure and they didn't tell him that he wasn't trained and they didn't make ways to prove that he was. Before we move on to things that residents should never be allowed to do alone, are there any other things that
1: we should talk about that you think are issues with regards to emergency residents in the emergency department and their behavior?
0: Well, I think that we're always concerned about the technical aspects of our residents. I think we also need to be concerned about the interactive skills of our residents because when they get out of the residency, they come to work for us. There is no question that the area that they need the most remediation on is interpersonal skills with patients. Their science is pretty good, and I think it's a responsibility of the attending. The attending sets the tone in the department, and it's perfectly reasonable to pull a guy aside and say, you know what? Mrs. Smith doesn't like you because of the following things, try this or that. And I think we forget to some extent, we are not just scientific advisors, we are role models of behavior, and they
1: need that. That's a great point. When you talk about role models, some doctors, you know them, I know them, they tend to be a bit like cowboys in the department. You know, they're kind of gunslingers. They kind of shoot from the hip. Hi, how are you kind of thing, but not much in the way of sincerity kind of thing. And here comes the turkey. I've known this person before. They're always here. They're here abusers. All of that gets communicated to the residents as this is acceptable behavior because i see my professors do this and
0: the residents tend to be raised there's 169 residencies right now if you look at the hospitals where they are they tend to be poorer more inner city bigger less personal now they're going to go out and get jobs in ritzy community hospitals where that sort of behavioral technique is absolutely important if you're in a gin and jaguar hospital where everybody is a friend of the CEO or something like that. The last thing you want to be if you're on the staff at Cedars in L.A. is root because they wouldn't, every, tolerate that. they wouldn't tolerate it. You'd be gone. And it doesn't matter how smart you are or how good you are putting in a central line. You make enough people with money mad. You're
2: history. Warm and fuzzies are hard to tell but easy to teach. They see your behavior and they mimic. You've got to be careful. Even in my inner city hospital... I've had nurses come up and say, oh, I see you saw my father yesterday, and I thought he was some bum off the street or some sort of drug abuser. He and was a bum off the street. He was a bum. But it happens to be the nurse's father. Yeah. <laughs> or in your case, it could be the CEO's secretary. You don't know that you said, well, you might have gonorrhea. Right. You gotta, we get that all the time. You know, I, I'm going to cheat you for gonorrhea as opposed to saying you know, the right way to do it. You talked about some other things.
1: Let me set that up because we were talking offline about things that you would not let residents do. And Jim has got a nice little laundry
2: list of things that he would not let residents do alone. The AMA is a perfect example. That's a setup for disaster because when you think about it, why does somebody want to leave? You've either got them angry, they think you're incompetent, or, you know, sometimes, you know, they want to go home and feed the cat. Or, well, they're frightened. Then they're frightened. They don't understand it and they have a lot of denial. So right. there's a good riddance policy. The nurses have it. Hey, hey, come here. i got good news. Joe wants to sign out again. Well, Joe is uh, the guy who's the perfect case for a subdural because he's drunk all the time and falling down, and you get into that good riddance policy. So and the residents will say, fine, let's do it. And usually they just said, patient left AMA, and that's their note, which is crazy. So those patients, I think, are high risk to let them go AMA. You've to do whatever you can. No one wins in an AMA discharge. Well, we've Nobody talked about wins.
1: AMAs in the past, but I think the, <clears throat> the key point here is don't let a doctor in training go out and handle this situation because it might not work out the way you want it to those amas don't go out ama where they go out under ama
0: under very specific terms i would take it a step further it's not that we don't want them to handle those cases i want them to watch me handle those cases bring them in the room come on in hear how i speak to the patient what i document on that chart because you know what in two years, they're going to be the big guy. That's what we need to do. That's what I really
1: meant to say. That the resident can be involved, but the attending needs to be there. Right, to... The
2: AMA discharge is a failure of something. It may be the patient's failure, but most of the time, it's a system failure, and it's just kind of human nature. So I think if, if you sign out AMA, you've lost, and the patient, who lost? Everyone loses an AMA. What do you get? You get nothing out of it. And I've seen residents go in and sort of go them on. Well, you could always sign out AMA if you don't want that blood gas. Right. Well, you know, get a Venus PA. What do you mean you can't go out and smoke? Well, let them go out and smoke. Smoke, you don't know, he, he'll come back. Well,
1: as an aside, the other thing is there's a difference between leaving against medical advice and declining or refusing this procedure. You can decline the blood gas because you know that it's painful and it's irrelevant in the majority of cases. And you can decline that, but that doesn't mean that you have to leave the building. There are forms that says you're declining this procedure. We recommend it, et cetera, et cetera, but we're still friends. We're still going to take care of you.
0: That's the half a loaf theory, and we've talked about that before, but if they'll only accept half a loaf, then give them
1: half a loaf. So on your list, Jim, you had the AMAs. You also had talking about somebody died in the department.
2: Right. The worst thing you want to do is have some... 24-year-old resident who's got dirty long hair and sneakers and last year's scrub suit on going out to tell someone their loved one had died. I think they need to learn how to do it themselves to tell them that someone has passed on. But that ought to be, first of all, a group effort. It's very difficult, I think, for have one doctor. If seven doctors in the ER and you tell the resident to go out and tell them that someone passed on, Now, if they're 90 years old and everyone expected it, maybe there's a little gray area there. But young person, 45-year-old, sudden cardiac, unexpected death, you want a team approach. You want the attending to lead that to teach by example of the resident that they did everything they could to do that. And that's the best way to teach them. You can show them the first time, second time, go out with them and let them try it, but you're there for backup but at least always have someone that has a little bit of gray hair and a little bit of experience that they know well. Everyone tried to do what they could. We understand, et cetera. But I don't think a second-year or first-year resident ought to be in charge of telling someone that they died out in the waiting room.
1: Especially the ones where totally unexpected, sudden, not prepared for it, young kid, middle-aged adult, working at the office. The next thing you know, you're telling the wife that your husband's dead.
0: Yeah, the worst thing in the world is the surprise death. And I think this is where we actually teach some teamwork to the residents. I'm not this huge, warm, fuzzy guy on the team, but this is a case where having pastoral care available, one of the nurses who can make phone calls for the family, a place where they can sit and talk with other family members who come in, arranging for them if they need to come back to find out more about the care. All of these things really are important and the resident has to see that done right a few times. Not this, well, run out and tell them that their 18-year-old is dead. I don't think our residents understand. Most of them don't have kids
2: yet. To be told that your child is dead is a huge life-changing experience. And we also talked a little bit about the perception of who your doctor is, that the patients like white coats and ties and a little bit older and so on. They may be very peer-oriented in how they dress and how they act, To a 50-year-old who's seeing a young resident in there, this kid is responsible to take care of my father when he came into cardiac arrest. You have to be real careful about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, doesn't the attending have five minutes to do this kind of thing to express this?
2: If you're the cardiac surgeon and the tetralogy of Fallot dies, you don't send your intern out to tell the family that the kid didn't make it. You do that yourself. You've got the five minutes to take care of him. That averts so much problem, and that's, that's the right thing to do. You ought to be doing that. DNRs? Yes, DNR is another thing that residents try to get DNRs on everybody because they're, who knows why, but probably because they ought to be DNR. <laughs> they most, ought to be Most DNR, of the right. time. You, know, you can keep anybody alive for long periods of time when they shouldn't be. But I think that if you're getting it, first time you approach it anyway, in a sensitive situation, maybe they never thought about it before. Most of them have thought about it a little bit. But I don't want my intern trying to talk somebody into a DNR. It's the same thing. You do it a couple of times with them. You see how good they are. You let them do it with you there. And then maybe when they're a senior resident – they can do it. Then I always go back and say, I understand that you don't want CPR or dialysis on your mother. Do you understand that she may die? So you have sort of a second tier, the preemptive strike that, yeah, the old guy over there in the gray who everybody seems to come up and ask questions, he's aware that my mom's here and that she's going to die. It's it's, again, it's a team effort and it's the leader of the team. And you teach by example and then you allow them to do it on their own.
1: And the last one probably would be, it's a subset, the TPA patient. Because so many of these lawsuits relate to informed consent and needs to be done carefully, needs to be done thoroughly as best as you can, considering you're dealing with a compromised patient, elderly patient, elderly family members may be also an issue. So that would be probably another area where you would want to make sure that they're doing it to the way you think it ought to be done.
2: So the first couple of times you show them how to do it and then you let them do it, and then you can let the reins go a little bit. But on life-threatening situations and something like that, you want to be involved. You want to have the head of the team involved. And again, I stress it's a team effort. It's not the doctor came in and told me. It's the doctors came in and told me about this drug for stroke, et cetera.
0: Well, I think that in general, the rule is the sicker the patient, the more they're going down the tube, we had this idea that we'll kind of stay away, kind of pull back a little bit, That's when you need to get the closest to the family because they've got to know you were involved in this situation. When all they think of when they see the name of their husband or father or whoever died come up and all they remember is the face of that child. And some of these residents are children. I have shoes and belts older than most of those kids. Yeah. And that's what they see. Then they don't realize that you were the attending. Now they get a bill with your name on it. Say, I don't remember that. That's not who told me about this. That's not the one who killed
1: grandma. And those are the times in particular when you want to hand out your business card and say, I'm Dr. So-and-so kind I, of I, thing.
2: On deaths and things like that, I always say, my name is Dr. Roberts. I'll be here to four. If you have any questions, call me. You know, maybe you're going to go home and you wonder why we didn't put a pacemaker in or something of that nature. Give me a call. They have a contact person. Doctors don't always have to be right, and they don't always have to cure you, but they have to care, and you have to show you that you care. And you show you care by being involved with the family, and they understand that. You want them to say when they go home, you know, mom died, the doctors, plural, did all they could for her. Not that, I don't know, she was okay when she left in the ambulance, and now she's dead. Something must have been wrong. And by God, they'll find something wrong, by the way. Let me tell you the most
0: important reason to have an attending talk to a family when someone's died. They have huge guilt as well. One of my jobs is relieving their guilt. Mrs. Smith, you did everything you could. See, you're part of the grieving process as well. They don't want to carry the load that her husband, for example, had been bitching about stomach pain or indigestion or something like that. And she told him to take a Tums and go lay down. Now she's punishing herself. And you know what? You need to be there to take some of that guilt off of them. And that's a useful role for an emergency doc.
1: Gentlemen, any further notes on this topic before we change? No, I think we've just about killed the residents. (laughs) That's right. Don't screw up. (laughs) Our clinical topic for the month is going to be a little bit about wounds. And uh, Greg told me that the major cause of wound-related litigation is foreign body, foreign body, and foreign body. So we're going to concentrate on wound foreign bodies. And I don't think we can have any better person here to talk about that than Jim, because not only does Jim have the Robertson-Hedges textbooks about wound care and things like that, he does a lot of litigation, as do you, Greg, with regards to defending doctors in relationship to wound care. And so let's talk a little bit about foreign bodies.
0: Jim's got a third qualification, too, that he's caused so much malpractice in his career (laughs) that, I mean, this is an expert sitting here. I I actually put foreign bodies in wounds so I can get sued,
1: and then I share it. We have in our database... But most of the papers are from the 70s and 80s. There's a ton of papers in there about glass and wounds. Does glass show up on x-ray? Does it have to be a certain kind of glass? Does any kind of glass show up? And the answer is any kind of glass will show up on x-rays if it's large enough. And when you talk about large enough, you're talking about a millimeter or two. You can see that depending on where the wound is in the hand, a small piece of glass can be very compromising if it's near the neurovascular bundle, even if it's a millimeter or two. In the butt, you could put a piece of plate glass in your butt, six by six, and in some people's butt, you'd never even know it was there. When the plaintiffs
0: bring these into court, the foreign body that is removed, it's always put in an encasement of some kind, and they carry it up as if it looks like it's the rose window at Notre Dame or something. The which Hope is Diamond. Being, yeah. yeah, the Hope Diamond would be small compared oh. to some of these, and it's never that long The point is this. When you're dealing with patients and there's been glass, even if you do an x-ray and you've carefully examined the wound, could there be a small shard of glass? Of course there could be. Be honest with the patient. When we have somebody who has a tattoo on their forehead from a windshield, could there be little bits of glass that you can't get out? Absolutely. And I tell them that. And I say the wound will spit glass. You may notice it come to the surface. If you prepare them then you're not so dumb. Preemptive strike. Preemptive strike. You're not dumb. You're so smart. You knew that was going to happen. And then they say, that doctor was pretty smart. He knew.
1: Your colleague, Neil Little, says you never tell a patient there's no glass in the wound. Never. There could be three molecules of glass in the wound because that allows the option for them to spit out a little piece and say, well, the doctor said that there could be a very tiny piece
2: there. And I totally agree with that. Discharge instructions should be, I think, formal and computerized for lacerations. And there should always be something in there. We have looked for foreign bodies and we didn't find it. We cannot find them all. There may be a problem with one, et cetera, et cetera. So you actually have told them in print that I always put a star around it or circle it where they sign it to say that there could be a foreign body in there. So don't make any guarantees because the hubris is worse than incompetence when it comes to that.
0: Yeah. And when someone is back in the emergency department, when a case is going badly, Now you've seen that someone's sewed up. Now there's an infection. Now there's a problem. Ask a few questions and understand that the x-ray doesn't pick up all foreign bodies. If it was wood, it won't pick it up. You may have to escalate the war to an imaging modality that will pick that up. That's one of the key
1: points, actually, is you need to know the right study to find what you're looking for. Certainly, you would not be taking soft tissue x-rays of the finger to find wood or the foot to find a splinter kind of thing. There have been nice papers about the value of ultrasound, and ultimately... Ultimately, if your level of suspicion is high enough, people are now going to MRs to try to find these foreign bodies because you know that if you leave that broken toothpick in there, that thing is absolutely 100% going to be infected. By
0: the way, I had a case where a teenage gal was riding on her horse. She went too close to a fence post. Something stabbed her in the leg, and then she goes, looked at by the emergency doc, says it looks all right, needs maybe one stitch, something like that. Now she comes back and in infected. Well, what do you think's down at the bottom of that? A piece of her genes, which, of course, did not show up on x-ray. And so now she's got an exactly dime-shaped piece of gene at the bottom of that wound, which the orthopod dug out. Well, let's break this into two sections, because
1: I know Jim's a uh, strategy for dealing with puncture wounds. I think it's very effective, and we're going to let them talk more specifically about wounds that have things that are not going to show up on normal imaging studies, like piece of cloth, piece of sneaker that goes in when you step, or your sock, your argyle, whatever. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a bit. Let's focus back on the glass issue. In our database, we have tons of papers that talk about this glass issue, and to be perfectly candid, it says you ought to have a really, 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 really low threshold for x-ray and glass cause wounds because studies are done where they ask the doctors, do you think there's anything in this wound? Doctor says, no, there isn't. They x ray and there it is. And it happens frequently enough that you're going to be disappointed and surprised. That's what the literature says. The literature is fairly compelling that this is going to be a surprising thing when you fail to take x-rays. Now, I must admit, frankly, I don't x-ray every glass-caused wound no. by any stretch of the imagination. And I think we may differ here at the table because I think, Jim, you have a very low threshold.
2: Well, stepping on a piece of glass and punching out a window is different than slicing it on the glass that you broke. That's going to be a laceration. You're not going to have a problem particularly with that. It's those ones that have a high mechanism of injury. You know, some drunk guy who punches out a window, he's got a high chance of having a piece of glass in there. But some guy who's cleaning after dinner, which some of us men do, and he cuts himself on a wine glass, and he's got easily seen lacerated. There's not going to be a piece of glass in there.
1: Exactly. I think one of the things is, although I must admit we have a paper that says even if the doctor could see the full extent of the wound, there was still often glass in the wound. But
2: they guarantee they couldn't see the full extent of it when they thought they were seeing the full extent. The other thing is,
0: it is the mechanism, if there's a shattering into lots of small pieces, that one needs... An x ray more than someone who's brushed up against the edge of a large, long, broken edge of glass.
1: So let's agree that we would have a low threshold, we would consider the mechanism, and we would also consider the location because a small piece of glass along the neurovascular bundle of your fingers is going to be much more compromising than one in your thigh. And the reason I bring that out is because. I do some of this medical legal stuff, not certainly not nearly as much as either of you two do, but there was a case I was involved in as the quote unquote expert, where in fact, this case actually went to trial Went to trial. Piece of glass along the neurovascular bundle of a finger had to be ultimately taken out. Was affecting the person's libido. The only way you could fix that was with cash. And the idea is we were going to get, get trial. And at the trial, the doctor who ultimately took out that piece of glass, which was really minute, took an X-ray first. And there on the uh, plain X-ray was this piece of glass. And he had every person in the jury get out of the jury box one at a time come up there and made a big show of them looking at it. So even a fricking layman would be able to see that there's something there as part of the the drama of the courtroom. This is
0: the show business of the courtroom. And once you know what you're looking for on any x-ray, I can find anything. And once you've drawn a circle around it and pointed it out, all they have to say is, well, any fool should
2: have seen X, Y, or Z. And patients are not very unforgiving about something left in a wound. For some reason, there are certain things, you know, well, maybe he didn't realize it was an ulcer when I first went to see him. But something left in a wound is something that they just, how could he possibly miss that? Sloppy. Particularly if when I said, I think there's a piece of glass in there, or I said, geez, I feel something in there, Mm -hmm. or he didn't even look. Most of the time, the doctors don't even look. So you really have to have a high end. I go in with every laceration that's not obviously out of the realm of a foreign body. I go in there saying, I've got to prove there's no foreign body in there. So you ask the patient, do you think there's something in there? Well, they're wrong sometimes and they're right sometimes. But I've seen the main patient, I punched him in the mouth and I found pieces of tooth in there. The same way with glass. You ask the patient, and I always put it down. The patient says, I don't think there's anything in there. That's a lot better than them saying, I told the doctor there was something in there mm-hmm. and he didn't even look. And then I think it's very hard on physical exam to find these things. You all have huge pieces on x-ray that we try to find them. You just can't find them. You're afraid to make the wound bigger, for one thing, so you're trying to go through a puncture wound, which you can never do. So make the wound bigger and open it up and get epinephrine in the lidocaine or put a tourniquet on there so you can actually see it and you can feel around for it. And then, again, if there's some question about it, that preemptive strike is, you know, I looked, I don't see a foreign body. And then the guy's thinking... Hey, he's a smart doctor. he looked for it. I'll understand. He's told me that I might have a piece of glass in there. And you tell that with every single laceration you have, maybe one out of a hundred you're going to be right, but you've already told the patient of that.
1: Yeah, that's also part of the preemptive strike philosophy, basically telling them a little bit of an extension of that is As they're lying down there and you're cleaning their hand or something to that effect after you've numbed it up so that you can do a good job or you've taken them to the sink and got their grease from their car engine off their hand with some soap and water kind of thing, I think it's really important to say part of this show has a dialogue and that dialogue is I'm going to really clean this wound out very well. I'm looking for any foreign bodies. I don't see any evidence of any tendon injury so that they are hearing this story of all of the work that you're doing to make sure that they're going to get a good outcome.
2: But they know that you're aware of their nerves and tendons yes. in their
0: hand. Right. And I always warn them too on those lacerations, particularly glass cuts, could they have nicked the tendon? Absolutely. You move fine today. You may not be moving fine when we take the stitches out. That's why we have doctors take the stitches out in 10 days or whatever it is. Not because you couldn't pull the stitches out, but we want to re-examine that finger to make sure it's still moving and sensing normally at that time.
2: You can also bill for it.
0: And you can bill for
2: it. The other thing
1: is, you have a nice laceration that's an inch or two long. It's going to be relatively easy to explore this kind of thing. The dangerous ones are the punctures. The question is, well, I just put one stitch in it, one staple in it. But the fact of the matter is, is that you really have a hard time evaluating what is at the bottom of that puncture, whether it be a step on a nail kind of thing or whatever. Jim, tell us what your technique is for going through the sole of the foot Ste- puncture. Stepping
2: on a nail, yeah, about 99.9% of them do fine. You could smear mayonnaise on them, and there won't be a problem. They'll, he'll, he'll just fine. They probably won't even come to the hospital. There's that 1% or so that turned out to have a problem, and it's usually a disaster unless you can short-circuit it. Well, Pseudomonas is a bad act. You know, every lawyer in the country knows Pseudomonas osteomyelitis from Absolutely. stepping on a nail with your sneaker. That's the first lecture to get Malpractice 101 because that's a devastating disease, and you never walk right after you get that. And it's usually missed, by the way, when you come back for your visit because it, it hurts a little bit, so you change the Keflex to augment it. So I think if you step on a nail, first of all, you ask the patient, did you see it? If it's a three-inch nail, you got to figure it went in three inches. Nobody has the reflexes to jump back. If they're wearing socks or flip-flops or sneakers, there's a foreign body in there till proven otherwise. X-rays aren't going to find anything on the vast majority of cases. So what you want to do is you look. And the way you look is you get them not in the wheelchair in the hallway but on their belly with good light. And you open it up with some time on your hands. And you take that flap of skin off, and you look in there. Sometimes then you'll see it. As far as antibiotics, prophylactic, it doesn't really help. In fact, some people say it, it sorts out pseudomonas. Coring them out, you know, a lot of people with big holes in their feet that never had anything wrong with them. I don't know whether you need to core them out or not. I don't think there's ever been a paper published that said that coring no, it works. Actually, no, I, there's a few. There's, there's a few that look at it. There's
1: very little written on puncture wounds in terms of double-blind, randomized, half we did this way, half we did that way. Mm -hmm. But, Jim, I thought that you did do a little making a circle around the hole kind of thing so you could look deeper into the wound.
2: Well, what I do is first, there's always a flap of skin that you have to lift up. And you can't irrigate a puncture wound. No, you know, can't. But We've seen interns put a 18-gauge catheter in there and force a 60-cc syringe. Now the foot's twice as big, and all you've done Nothing is... Nothing comes out. It's like putting
1: a needle in a loaf of bread. Right, right. You know, exactly. In, out, where's the hole? Yeah.
2: <laughs> so what I usually do is, I think most of the time you'll be able to tell with a good look under good lighting... And it hurts like heck to get anesthesia in there, but I think you really need to get some anesthesia and maybe spread the puncture wound a little bit. I oftentimes, to be honest, if I don't see anything and it's a sock or a shoe that they had on, I will assume there's a foreign body in there and I will take out a core tissue. And I've been surprised at of what you find in there. The worst you can do is now have a clean big puncture wound instead of a dirty small puncture wound. So I don't think there's much downside other than the patient has a little bit of pain. So I would err on the side of being generous. I don't think they all have to be cored out. And I certainly don't think prophylactic antibiotics, even cipro for pseudomonas, has not prevented these infections. Yeah,
1: one of the things I think it's really important to stress is that giving cipro for uh, puncture wounds of the foot is by no means the standard of care and should not be expected of you.
2: Now, most puncture wounds of the foot that get infected are probably uh, gram positives anyway. Mm-hmm. The disasters are those smoldering issues with the pseudomonas. But the biggest problem is they come back six days later and says, "Doc, it still hurts." And you do an X-ray, and you do a CBC, and you do a SED rate, and they're all normal. So you, then you put them on Keflex. They come back four or five days later. still hard. You change them to Augmentin. Then you get a surgical resin. comes down and says they don't have a white count. They don't have the elevated SED rate. It's probably scar tissue. Those are the people that are smaller. Those people need some sort of further investigation. If you're two weeks out from a puncture wound and you still have an aching foot, you've got trouble. And it's almost always a foreign body, and it's oftentimes those infections. And it's re- often
1: a 60-year-old diabetic. Yeah, you know, I do remember seeing one of these came back where, I don't believe I was treating a doctor on the first visit, on one of the subsequent visits for this stuff in the nail kind of thing, this thing was now festering a little bit, and there was teased out part of the flip-flop. It basically spit that thing out, ultimately. It was there.
2: Yeah, but they're put in a the deep. They won't spit out. That's why you say, usually you see them, I think, when you look at them, but... I must admit, I've cored out a lot of those, and I go to the full hilt of an 11 blade. It's almost a centimeter and a half. It's a pretty good hole you put in there, and you just core the whole thing out about maybe three or four millimeters, and it looks like a pretty big hole, but you'd be surprised. In two or three days, if there's nothing in there, they're back to normal.
1: And any toe tendons or uh, flexors that get involved in that one
0: and
2: a half? They shouldn't have
0: been there anyway, (laughs) Rick.
2: It's pretty hard. The, The puncture wound to the hand is the big one. If I see a drunk or a patient who can't cooperate or I just can't tell, you know, they always have some sort of funky, they won't move it because it hurts too much, so you can't really test the power, or they have, yeah, I feel numbness here, and then next time they don't feel it and so on. You know, it's every time you touch them, say, nope, can't feel it, nope, can't feel it, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. You don't know what to do with those. I tell them, you probably have nicked your tendon in your palm of your hand. And then I splint them. So I've told them they have a tendon laceration. I may be wrong. They come back four or five days later, and they find them the best doctor in the world because I cure their tendon puncture after four or five days with what I did. If they come back, these are best to punt to the hand surgeon let them take the liability. But when they come back, if they do have some disability, you've already told them that. And I put down flexor tendon injury on the charts. If I'm wrong, they're fine. But oftentimes, you're right. There's no way you can tell when someone has a deep puncture wound whether they have an 80% tendon laceration or not because they'll have full function. Well, you should not feel guilty or
0: be made to feel guilty about the fact that you can't make that decision tonight. There are certain things which are only tested with time. And the hand surgeons are much smarter than all of us. They did all the sleep studies. That is, they did studies where they lacerated chicken tendons and went and sewed them up for weeks later to see how long you could get about the same result. That saves their sleep about getting out of bed to come in and do those tendons. Nobody does that anymore. Whenever I see these people complaining, I think, did you think that there was going to be someone come in tonight at 2 in the morning to take an emergency team to the operating room to do that tendon? It just doesn't happen. And so I just tell them straight out, could it be nicked? Of course... And if there's a problem with that, hand surgeons will do it later and you will do just fine.
2: There are a couple of tips that you have a tendon, partial tendon laceration. One, they're weak when they try to flex it or extend it. Yeah, it's kind of very subtle. The other is it seems to get caught up sometimes in a little bit of piece of tissue that doesn't slide. There are no sheaths on the extensor tendons, so it's a lot more difficult. But flexor tendons, they should have full function. If you can't tell, I agree with Greg, there's no shame in saying, I don't know. So what you do is you, for a litigation issue, you think it's very important. See your hand surgeon, here's his number, see him noon on Tuesday, for a reexamination, examination and tell them I was concerned about a tendon injury. I put that right down on the chart there. Most of these people won't come back. If they come back three weeks later when their tendons popped, they have trouble. They need tendon transfers, etc. and you didn't tell them. Come back for a wound check doesn't cut it. It's a time, a place, and a person, even if it's you. These patients are the meanest drunks at uh, Saturday night. They're nice people on on Monday morning. And now they say, yeah, it's still numb in that area. You haven't wasted anything in two or three days. Nope, not a bit.
1: No, I think that that's uh, all very good advice. Absolutely. We do have some papers from the 70s which talked about what you can get away with in terms of tendons. You can cut through three quarters of a tendon, and that thing will generally be just fine.
2: They actually heal better if you don't suture them.
1: Exactly. You actually read some of I those read some of it.
2: It's in my book. If you want to spend $300, <laughs> you too can learn all this.
1: <laughs> no, that was true. I mean, you're allowed to have a partial nick in a tendon, and you usually get away with it just fine, even if it's substantial. By the way,
0: there are wounds, however, which I have seen litigation take place because the doctor wasn't aware of certain problems. One of those were air gun wounds. We have to be careful
1: about the air gun and
0: the expires and all that other stuff. And just what you need is some 19 year old kid working in the garage, who's decided to put the air gun against his thumb to see if it pressurizes? Those are
2: always disasters. The, always The disasters. chance of them having a normal finger after that is minimal. Yeah, but the chances minimal. of you screwing that
1: up
0: are also minimal, what? too. We're talking about the subtle cases that go out and they come back to bite you. Yeah, well, but if you aren't aware of this sort of thing, it can come back. And I had a family doc working in an emergency department, a small one. He was unaware of this. Steph said well the kid's finger could move it was only a small puncture wound and of course he had pain both in the thumb and in the fifth digit Because it had traveled along the compartment, and now they'd
2: blown both air and oil particles into the finger. This whole foreign body stuff is a perfect example of the preemptive strike. No hubris. You're not God. You can't see what the x-ray can't tell you. You don't know about tendons 100% of the time. So you basically do the preemptive strike and say, you could have or you might have. We need to recheck you. And the rechecking is the definitive recheck. It's not, we'll check you 10 days and we take the stitches out.
1: Well, gentlemen, that's the April issue of Risk Management Monthly. Jim, I really want to thank you for taking the time out. Your expertise on this and your experience are just terrific, and I think you did a fabulous job. And I do want the option, now that I have witnesses, we're going to be giving you a call. Greg, we have about – I'll I'll have get talk to my agent.
3: Before we close the tape with wine of the month, we have a little bit of time here, and so since I'm editing this fine product, I thought I would throw in my two cents here from California. I don't get to travel the world like some people. Here's what I got out of this month's Risk Management Monthly. We heard that the ER doc, whenever possible, should discharge the patient. Many things come up right at discharge. If you're there, you can fix them. You can catch some of your own errors. You can make the patient feel better. And if you have a card hand them your card. I thought those were great pearls. When it comes to house staff, just remember, we've sort of been over this kind of stuff before, but the house staff, basically, you're in charge of them. What they do uh, matters to you, because if you are on the record as being the person as the attending for that case, you better know exactly what's going on. It really doesn't help you when they screw up. Well, what about rotating residents and procedures? Well, they suggest this, that you time and that you date and you make a note or the person doing the procedure, makes a note. And again, if you're going to bill for a procedure, whether it's an off-service resident or an on-service resident, you better know exactly what's going on. Just assume care for that patient. doesn't mean you have to do everything again, but you need to introduce yourself to the patient, you need to know what's going on, you need to read that chart. Just be careful. One of the specific ones that came up was OBG and CTG monitoring, cardiotrophographic monitoring. So you've got that person, they're in a trauma, you send them up to OB to get the CTG and sometimes they go straight home and sometimes they come back, what's the right way to do it? Well, the right way to do it is, if they're gonna go home from OB, if that monitor shows that their baby is okay, make sure that you're completely finished with them and even maybe discharge them from the emergency department. Or if they're coming back, make it clear that they need to come back to you first. So in most places they'll come back, or at least that's my experience, and then we'll discharge them. But depending on where you work as to how you set that up, but be very careful about that. They will just look at the monitor in many cases and nothing else. There was a lot more about residents in the emergency department, which is probably only of interest to those people who have residents in the emergency department. But the summary of a lot of what went on there is teach by showing. So uh, DNRs and death telling and this kind of thing. Teach your residents how to do it by doing it yourself in front of them and then being with them as they do this. And this is true of procedures and this is true of taking history and physical. You show and then you let them do and then you show some more and then you let them do. And we don't do this very well in academics, let me tell you. We tend to just let them go and then uh, let them work it out for themselves, which is not very good. Then we got to some good, really good clinical stuff. And here are the pearls that I learned in the clinical era Wound, foreign bodies, glass. You should have a very low threshold, a very low threshold for seeing if there is glass in a wound by X-raying it. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority, even non-lead-based glass, shows up on X-ray. There are circumstances where the glass fragment is very small, where it's not likely to do much harm, where you can say to the patient, Well, there's a little bit of glass in there, but it's not going to come out, it's too tiny. But even when you can't see the glass on examination, even when you don't see it on x-ray, if it is a fragment-prone wound, particularly a shattered piece of glass, then you never tell a patient, you never tell the patient, we got it all out. You say, we uh, looked in there, couldn't see any, we looked on x-ray and we couldn't see any, but there's probably still some in there, there might be some still in there. Don't be surprised if... It comes to the service later, or if you're having pain, we can take another look. But right now, the risk-benefit of going and digging around in there is not in your favor. You're a smart patient. We're just going to watch you for a while and see if this glass gets spit out or if everything's fine. With injuries to the foot with nails, this is a very high-risk injury. And as we heard from Dr. Roberts, who is the king of this stuff, Most of these people do fine, step on a nail and do fine. A small minority get bad things. They get staph into that wound, they get pseudomonas in that wound, they get plastic from the bottom of their shoe into that wound, and it's bad. There is no good algorithm here. And so one of the things you can do is just lift up the flap and take a look in there. And sometimes you see a bit of shoe and you pull it out. Sometimes you might feel the need to, if you're very concerned, if you're high risk, to core it out. For example, on x-ray, you see a little shadow and you think, boy, that might be something in there. Sometimes you might have to call this out. A lot of the time, it's just setting patient expectations. Uh, You've done the right thing. You've looked in there. We're not sure. We're just going to have to wait and see for a few days. You can try prophylactic antibiotics, but it's really not clear if this is one of those ones that's got some foreign body in there that's going to get infected that it makes any difference. But this is high risk, and I believe in addition to what those guys have said, there should be routine follow-up for these people. Stepped on a nail, can't find anything, did everything right. Routine follow-up. Get them seen, and then probably even get them seen again, because pseudomonas and staph osteomyelitis under these circumstances is very, very bad. Ladies and gentlemen, my name's Mel Herbert, and that is my summary of this month's Risk Management Monthly. Let's go back to the boys in Florida and talk wine, shall we?
0: Greg, we have about a minute and a half for the wine of the month. Well, we're going to go to one of our listeners now for the Wine of the Month. This is Steve Falstad, who is recommending to us, it's Wine of the Month, Henry's Drive, no relationship to me, and in parentheses, Pillar Box Red. This is an Australian blend of Shiraz, Cabernet and Merlot, says you can get this for about $9.99 a bottle. I'm not sure how much it is per tank car load. How about per box? Per box. (laughs) We don't know how much it is per box, but it sounds like a bottle is $9.99, and he swears by it. So we're going to have to go out and get a bottle of this. Well, it's 4
1: o'clock here in Key West. I think it's time for cocktails, gentlemen. I think
0: it is, too. It's Miller time.
1: Talk with you next month. Bye for now. Bye.